Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. It's called the Art of the No Deal. Yeah, the summit is off. Hello, everybody. What do you say? That news breaking right after our show ended yesterday here. It is the Bill Press Show on this Friday. Yes, indeed. Friday, May 25. Good to see you today. Great to be back with you. Thank you for joining us here on the Bill Press Show. And a big thank you to Peter Rugburn and Jason Dick for filling in while I was... Uh, out in California, up in Sacramento, actually, um, celebrating, again, uh, publication of my new book, From the Left, A Life in the Crossfire. If you haven't seen it yet, go to BillPressShow.com. we got lots to talk about today. There was a lot of news yesterday, mostly around uh, the summit and reaction to the sudden cancellation of the summit, including reaction from uh, the leader of North Korea and members of the United States Senate. Uh, and, by the way, also, that kind of overshadowed the ongoing Spygate scandal, which Donald Trump is now claiming is the biggest political scandal in the history of the country, surpassing even Watergate. He is right about that. It is worse than Watergate because he's accused or he is suspected and being investigated for a lot more serious crimes than Richard Nixon was. Uh, yeah, the break-in of the Democratic headquarters at the Watergate, uh, overshadowed uh, by Donald Trump's criminality, and that's what Robert Mueller is looking into. we got so much to talk about, so many things to cover, so want to hear from you. So send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. We get into uh, the breakup of the summit and the latest on Spygate, plus some other news of the day. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. A very interesting new study from Oxford research psychologist, Dr. Kevin Dutton, 
He took a look uh, in his new book, Psychopath, with the wisdom of psychopaths, what saints, spies, and serial killers can teach us about success. And it details jobs that are most likely to attract psychopaths. Talk radio host. Number one. Talk radio. Radio. No, radio. really? People who work in radio. Uh, how do I know it? Number one. Art number, Bell. Number two, journalists. Number three, media presenters. Who wrote this book? Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dr. Kevin Dunn. He says that uh, the key character traits to look out uh, for are the ability to control others uh, and to be manipulative, and those three jobs are the top three jobs that attract psychopaths. I'm just saying, I report, you decide. Let me ask you about this. Are you still Total happy BS. with your... I'm sure that book was self-published. <laughs> I got to tell you. No, but I, I mean, ridiculous. I, get, I don't think it's that ridiculous. If you met some of the people that work in our industry... <laughs> Too many of them. Yeah, exactly. Are you still happy with your Alexa, your Amazon Echo? Uh, I'm very happy with Alexa. Okay, you got to be careful, though, because there's a woman in Seattle who says that she was having a conversation with her husband about hardwood floors. A couple days later, a family acquaintance received a recording of their conversation, their private conversation in their home. What ha happened was they were having this conversation. Alexa thought that she heard her name. She, uh, and that's, then, that's what happens. You cannot say her name. And then they thought that Alexa <laughs> thought that she heard someone say send message, at which, point, at which point she started recording the message and then thought that she had heard someone say the name of the family friend that it then sent it to. So just to be clear, a private conversation in their house was recorded by Alexa and sent to somebody else. Amazon actually yesterday confirmed the story. Because people thought this, like, yeah. this might be a weird thing. They might have screwed up. Amazon confirmed the story and said you have to be careful if you say anything that sounds like Alexa. And I hate to say it because I know a lot of people have their Alexas going right. off right now because I said yeah. it. But you got to be careful if you say it. It'll, I told you we moved her working. to the we moved her to the living room and yeah. she's like having another person in the living room. And you're having a conversation. <laughs> and suddenly she'll speak out. You know what? I get more of that from Siri. Sure. Siri does the same damn thing. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, remember that June 12 summit in Sin in uh, Singapore? Forget about it. Yeah, that's what Donald Trump says. Forget about it. It ain't going to happen. Hello, everybody. You know, we were a little skeptical from the beginning, right? That there was never going to be a summit. Uh, I remember Peter Ogburn particularly said it's not going to happen. And, uh... You proved to be right. Uh, yeah. a, a, a blind pig finds an acorn every once every in a while. Every once though. in a while, exactly. Hello, everybody. What do you say? Here we are on a Friday, May 25. Great to see you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you with us all across this great land of ours, wherever you are around the globe. Thank you for joining up here on the Bill Press Show. A lot to cover in the next two hours. And it's good to be back with you after a quick trip up to uh, Sacramento, where uh, I spent uh, nine good years out there in Sacramento working in the state legislature, uh, working for a big and great environmental group called the Planning and Conservation League, and then for four years uh, working with uh, my good friend, Governor Jerry Brown, 
uh, had a good meeting with him on uh, Wednesday and a big book party for my new book, Bill Press, From the Left, A Life in the Crossfire, uh, with Jerry and his wife Ann came by uh, Wednesday evening. Uh, it was great fun, great fun. He was in rare form. Had a chance to talk about uh, a lot of issues, including uh, whether or not he might even think about running in 2020. Uh, oh, and uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and, and, and particularly talking about Donald Trump's stupid war with California and Jerry Brown determined that they're not going to uh, back down on climate change, they're not going to back down on Medicare, and they're not going to back down on Obamacare. Uh, they're not going to back down on uh, uh, the new car standards for California. Uh, they're not going to back down on sanctuary cities. Uh, and so it is like being in uh, another country right now, the economy, the country with the fifth largest and best economy in the world. This is a good opportunity, by the way, to remind people to follow us on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show, because you tweeted out a couple photos of you and the governor uh, yeah, out in California. Right. It's a good mm -hmm. way to keep up with you even when you're not here. So right. Check it out. Thank you. And while I was not here, Peter Ogburn and Jason Dick uh, filling in. Thank you both. Uh, also... Um, uh, you know, I, I uh, discovered a, and I met with uh, the head of a, a great new, um, new newsletter for California called Cal Matters. Cal Matters, one word, calmatters.org. Uh, Dan Moraine, Dan Walters, uh, and some other good people out there putting that, uh, that out every day. It's a good way to keep up with the politics of California, which are very, very interesting these days because, of course, they got a great big governor's race. Uh, I still vote in California. I uh, the, the ballot in California listed 26 people running for governor. Holy cow. Yeah. It's hard. To, the one that you know that you want to vote for, it's hard to find. You really got really to <laughs> search. And probably, I'd say, maybe 14 or 15 running for U.S. Senate. Uh, so uh, it's uh, – uh, anyhow, this is a very exciting time uh, for, for California. Very, exci very exciting time for the country. Uh, Joe Cirincioni from the Plow Show, so I'm going to be coming along a little bit later. Uh, to talk about the number one story of the day, which is uh, Donald Trump, yes, canceling the uh, June 12 summit with Kim Jong-un in, um, in Singapore. Uh, and then we'll be joined by uh, Chris Liu, former U.S. Uh, Deputy Secretary of Labor, and Rebecca Vallis from the Center for American Progress. With the big stories of the day, the North Korean summit, Donald Trump continuing to stir up trouble, uh, which he now is calling Watergate. Harvey Weinstein turning himself in this morning to New York authorities. He will be charged, pardon me, allegedly with rape and uh, other serious sexual assault um, allegations. And then we'll talk also about New York State and the Democratic National Committee deciding that they're going to endorse in the primary, at least the chairman did yesterday, endorsing Governor Andrew Cuomo. Let's start with that summit. It was uh, He did it by sending a letter to Chairman Kim Jong-un, but uh, Donald Trump yesterday, uh, in a sense, in essence, making the announcement to reporters. Based on the recent statement of North Korea, I have decided to terminate the planned summit in Singapore on June 12th. And the president saying, you know, uh, gee, for a while there, it almost sounds like, sounds like he talked to Kim Jong-un on the phone, but we're, we don't know that for sure, but... He said, yeah, for a while there, we had a good dialogue going. The dialogue was good until recently, and I, I think I understand why that happened. Why was that? And I, I won't say that. Someday I'll 
I'll give it to you. You can write about it in a book. By the way, <sighs> yeah, I, I feel like we were sort of working our way up to this. There were a couple of moments. I'm sure you remember some of the audio that we played. He was talking about different deals that were done during the Obama administration, the Iran deal specifically. He goes, no one was ever willing to walk away from the table. Mm -hmm. No one was willing to walk away from the table. I'm willing to do that. Yeah. And he, he said. And he, that's exactly what he did. He said ahead of time that he could walk away from it before it happened or he could get there and get up and walk away during the meeting. Right. Yeah. He's always, he's always threatened. That. Look, here's the bottom line. Monumentally stupid. Monumentally stupid thing to do. And it shows what happens when you have a total jerk, a total inexperience, a total know-nothing in charge of American foreign policy. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it's just embarrassing to have him there, let's face it. And for him, this is like he's handled this like he used to handle his real estate deals, right? Oh, yeah, I want to do that building. No, I decided I don't want to do it. Yeah, I want to go with that contract. No, I don't want to do it. Just back and forth, no planning, no thinking, no expertise, you know, no just a strategy at, at all. Just very impulsive. Uh, he got out of this deal the same way he got into the deal. Remember, he had not consulted anybody about whether or not it would be a good idea to have a summit. And by the way, with the right planning, it's a great idea to have a summit. But he didn't do it in any methodical way after talking to some experts and saying, here's what we want to, here's what we want to accomplish, here's why it's important, and here are the steps we have to take before we sit down, and here's what we'd like to come out of with it, and here's what we might be willing to give up, and dot, 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 all of that stuff that normally goes into any meeting with any foreign leader, let alone a summit with the head of North Korea. No, it was just somebody from South Korea comes in and says, Kim Jong-un might be willing to meet with you, and he said, boom, let's do it. He didn't consult anybody. Boom, let's do it. This, this happened the same way. South Korea, the president of South Korea, did not know until he read about it or heard about it in the, in the media that Donald Trump was canceling the summit, which the president of South Korea, President Moon, is the one who really put it together, starting with the Olympics and then meeting with Kim Jong-un twice, well, I guess just once at the DMZ, but was going to meet with him again. Uh, he didn't know about it ahead of time. Head of Japan, Prime Minister of Japan, did not know about it ahead of time. President of China did not know about it ahead of time. Nobody knew it except Donald Trump. And apparently he went to bed one night and the summit was on and he thought about it and said, well, I don't know. This is such a good idea. And the next morning he gets up and says, calls up uh, Pompeo and calls up, John, well, you know, John Bolton was urging him to pull out and calls up Jim Mattis and tells him, I'm canceling the summit. And that's what he did yesterday morning. Just boom. You know, it's funny that you mentioned Insane. John Bolton because no one's really talked much about John Bolton in, in this. In this, if and, there's anybody's fingerprints yeah. on canceling the summit, it's John Bolton. Yep, that's yeah. a very good point. Yeah, it's a yeah. very very good point. We talk about how reckless Donald Trump is, and he is. Yeah, but like the John Bolton influence on this decision is pretty clear. And bad enough to pull out of the summit, but in doing so, Donald Trump once again gets back to talking about how big our military is, how many nuclear weapons we have indicating again, you know, back where he started that uh, my nuclear button is bigger than your nuclear button and we could wipe North Korea off the face of the earth. And, and there's, other, there's no reason other than this sort of um, braggadocio about the U.S. military might for him to put this, this sentence in the letter, quote, 
you talk about your nuclear capabilities, but ours are so massive and powerful that I pray to God they will never have to be used. Yeah. Again, just that 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 whole thing, right? Um <laughs> it's it's it, we're, we're so desensitized to Trump as president now. Like if any other president was threatening nuclear war, we would be losing our minds and that's just yeah. a footnote yeah. to this story. Right. That's just an like not even the biggest part of this story. Right. So John Carl from ABC News yesterday asked uh uh, the president, are you, you know, is the option here war? Does the breakdown of this summit raise the risk of war with North Korea? We'll see what happens. I hope oh, uh, oh yeah. that we'll continue onward. We'll see. But uh, we are in a very strong position. I think they want to do what's right. Yeah, yeah. We'll see what happens. Well, that's pretty that's his fl- go-to answer. That's a pretty, that's his go-to answer. He always says that, yeah. That's a pretty flip answer to nuclear war. We'll see how it happened. Yeah, maybe yeah. Ah, maybe yes. Maybe no. Yeah, depends on how I feel that day. That's it's so funny. Ask me tomorrow. That's his answer to everything. What are you yeah. serving at the state dinner? Uh-huh. We'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen to James Comey? Mm-hmm. Well, we'll see what mm-hmm. happens. Are we going to go into nuclear war? We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and of course, everybody's saying, "Well, he didn't totally cancel it. He left the door a little bit open to maybe later." It's possible that. The existing summit could take place or a summit at some later date. Nobody should be anxious. We have to get it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe now, maybe. Listen, they're not going to reschedule this meeting. Not this year. No, no. There's no way, no how. Think about it. First of all, um, you know what happened, I think, is this was coming up so fast that maybe he realized, holy hell, you know, this is like tomorrow. And I haven't thought about it, and we don't have any plans made, and we're not really. And I'm going to go in there. I would hope, <laughs> even that he thought, I'm going to go in there unprepared. Maybe this is not such a good, good idea to do it. But at, at any rate, what comes up? The midterm elections. Do you think in the middle of the midterm elections they're going to risk having a summit that would prove to be a disaster, which it could readily prove? Um, uh, even though North Korea yesterday, their response actually was pretty mild and pretty calculated. Because because I think still Kim Jong Un comes out of this looking better than Donald Trump does. Let's just be let's just be very clear about what you just said, and I and yeah, I agree with you totally. A murderous dictator looks better than Donald. Looks Trump. better than Donald Trump. Yeah, he, you're Donald, right. Donald Trump has succeeded in making Kim Jong Un right look, which like, is all he wanted. Look like he's a major player and a reasonable major player who, despite Donald Trump. Humiliating him, embarrassing him, pulling out of the summit, still says, Well, it's too bad we'd still be willing to meet, and I hope that Donald Trump will turn around. And by the way, his announcement came simultaneously. Not that I listen, not that I trust Kim Jong un for a half a second, but the announcement that it's not going to be a summit came at the very moment that North Korea had a bunch of reporters up in the mountains watching them. I don't know whether you saw the video last night. I did blow up this nuclear testing site. And, and again, reporters, I thought, were pretty honest. They said, look, we're not nuclear experts. We can't say for sure that that's what this was, but there were all these tunnels. They showed them the tunnels. They took them inside. They showed them where they would put the dynamite or the, whatever, the explosives. And then they went up on a ridge over top and watched them blow it up, whatever it was. And they also, so that was a step 
that they promised to do before the summit. They did release the prisoners. Uh, they had made some steps toward toward having having the summit. I thought Bob Menendez, senator from New Jersey, summed it up pretty well yesterday uh, when he said, "This is what happens again when you got a lightweight in charge." The art of diplomacy is a lot harder than the art of the deal. Uh, the reality is is that it's pretty uh, amazing that the administration might be shocked that North Korea is acting as North Korea might very well normally act. Yeah. Clearly, clearly out of his out of his depths in over his head uh, in dealing with foreign policy, uh, which is very troubling uh, and very dangerous. It feels like a throwaway line when he said, you know, the art of the deal is different than, than the art of diplomacy. But it really does highlight the whole issue that Republicans made in the election that it's good to have a businessman as, as the leader of the free world. Because you do this in a business meeting, everyone just thinks you're a jerk and everybody will cover up for it and the business will keep going. You do this on a world stage, and you send shockwaves around the world. Yeah, well, do you know what? <coughs> the problem with that theory is that Donald Trump is not a good businessman. <laughs> That's also part of it, yes. <laughs> Nobody in the business community respected Donald Trump. Banks would not do business with him. Most contractors in New York, they might have done business with him once. They would never do it again because he didn't pay his bills and he treated them like crap. So what kept Donald Trump, this, this, this all ties together, what kept him afloat during all these last years? You know what it was? Russia. Money from Russia. Go back. I was doing a lot of research on this on the plane back and forth. He has over 20 years of getting these Russian oligarchs to put money in his property. The Trump Towers in Panama City and in Vancouver and in Soho in New York, all, all, of, the, all of them financed by Russian oligarchs. That's, and Donald Trump Jr. himself said during the recession, we don't have any problem because we just got all this money coming in from Russia. So we're not really impacted by the U.S. recession. So, yeah, you got a businessman. You got a businessman who is just a flimflam artist, and he's he's doing foreign policy the same way he did those business deals. At any rate, the summit is out, is off. Um, Joe Sirincioni from the Plowshares Fund will be joining us shortly, uh, and uh, walk us through some of the foreign policy implications because th this is huge in terms of I think again, America's credibility. Put it this way. You're another country, and you're thinking you might want to make a deal with the United States of America, with Donald Trump as president, Donald Trump who has pulled out of Paris Accords, Donald Trump who pulled out of the nuclear Iran nuclear deal, Donald Trump who pulled out of NAFTA, Donald Trump who pulled out of TPP, and now Donald Trump who has pulled out of the summit with North Korea. Why would you trust this man on anything? Seriously, why would you trust him on anything? And by the way, a little foreign policy-related thing yesterday before we get into Spygate. I don't know whether this sort of got lost. But I saw that Donald Trump tweeted out, there's going to be good news for American auto workers pretty soon. It's coming up. Pay attention, pay attention. I thought, what's this all about? Well, what it was all about is he announced yesterday that they're considering, he's considering now, they didn't announce they're doing it, they're considering uh, putting tariffs on foreign cars, a 25% tariff 
on foreign cars. Again, he, he was this madman out there in the trade who announces all these tariffs on aluminum and steel, starting a trade war with Canada, Mexico, until he took them off the list. Still, European Union, still, maybe China, who knows. Announcing tariffs on uh, China, particularly on electronic products, and then saying, oh, well, we'll take this one company, we'll take them off the list, right, because they help us. It's just, it's just crazy the way he just throws this crap out there. And then now he says 25% on foreign cars. Here's, here's a question I've got for you. I dare you to tell me what's a foreign car today and what's not. You cannot. Tell. You go to South Carolina. There's a Volvo plant. There's a Mercedes plant, South Carolina. I, I don't know what else. I know those two. I think there's a, there are Toyota plants all over the country. Totally. You go to any, I heard a, 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 an auto dealer say this yesterday. You go to any car dealership today and you look at that car, you can't tell. You cannot say that that is a foreign car, no matter what, no matter who owns it or what the brand is. Because those parts, probably 60% of the parts in every Volvo are made here in the United States of America. And if you get, a, you see a Ford, the chassis is probably made in Mexico. All of these cars are combinations of parts made from all over the world. So what you're saying is it's a fairly nuanced issue, which is not exactly the strong suit for Donald Trump. What I'm saying is, yeah, that today the auto industry and the auto has changed. Yeah, totally. Right? And it is true. You had at one time, okay, let's say the Volkswagen. Yeah, they were all made in Germany and they were all shipped over here, right? Or early Toyota or the Hondas. They were all made in Japan. They were all shipped over here. That's not the case today. The foreign companies have, have they, they have factories in the United States. Uh, the part manufacturers have factories in the United States. And the American auto manufacturers have, have, have American automakers have manufacturing plants all around the world. It's, it's, it's a global enterprise. Um, so what's that going to mean for the auto industry? It's great. I, 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 frankly, I doubt that it will ever happen. But. I mean, you're right. The auto industry has changed a lot. But for a president who's still living in 1980, 1990, he doesn't understand yeah. that. Right. Meantime, he's try he is, I'll tell you one thing, successfully, very successfully, he, this is, he's good. He's good at um, conspiracy theories. He's good at stirring up. He's good at, you know what he's good at? Fake news. Donald Trump is the master of fake news. And the big fake news right now is that there was a spy, which he started a week ago today, a spy planted in his campaign by the FBI. It has been totally refuted by the FBI. It has been totally refuted by members of his campaign team. And we've told you last Monday and Tuesday, we talked a lot about this, exactly what happened. The FBI was investigating Donald Trump because they had reason to believe that some of his people were having meetings with Russian operatives about getting some help from them to help in, in, the, election, in the election campaign. So they did have this informant who was talking to people inside the campaign, talking to George Papadopoulos, Papadopoulos talking to Carter Page, talking to Sam Clovis about what was really going on. But it was not a spy. It was a legitimate FBI criminal investigation 
just like the one that they were doing, just like similar to the one they were doing with Hillary Clinton on her emails. The difference, as we talked, is we knew about the Hillary Clinton investigation. They kept the Donald Trump secret, one secret, and thereby helped Donald Trump. It would really have hurt him if it came out that he was under criminal investigation. We never knew it until after the election. Thank you, James Comey, for nothing, right? But the idea now that Trump has been had blown this up into, he calls it the biggest political scandal ever to hit the country, which is just ridiculous. But people are buying into it. And uh, he calls it Spygate, given it his own name. And yesterday... They actually succeeded, White House succeeded, drumming this up with the help of particularly Devin Nunez and Paul Ryan in the House, where they actually forced the FBI and the Department of Justice to give a top-secret briefing to, at first it was just to the Republican leadership about exactly what the FBI did and what they didn't do. Initially, they weren't even going to invite any Democrats Adam Schiff crashed the party, ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, he crashed the party, and he came out afterwards again. Is there? Did you, did you hear any evidence that there was a spy planted in the Trump campaign? Nothing we heard today has changed our view that there is no evidence to support any allegation that the FBI or any intelligence agency placed a spy in the Trump campaign. It did not happen. Don't believe it. It did not happen. Uh, and um, but I, I don't know how I don't know how far they can take you know, what this is all about. And I I thought it was. I don't know if we talked about well, maybe you talked about while I was gone. But Leslie Stahl gave a great interview to CNBC. I think it was this week where she said she 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 mentioned that right after the election, she was talking to Donald Trump. Trump Tower, and he started bad-mouthing the media again and dumping on the media, and she said, Donald, you won, right? Why are you still doing this? And he said, I'll tell you why I do it, because I want to discredit you so that no, if you write a bad story about me, nobody will believe it. That's what the Spygate thing is. He's trying to discredit Robert Mueller and the FBI, so when they come out with their report saying that he did collude with the Russians and he did obstruct justice, that fewer people will believe him. Certainly his base won't believe him. That's what this is all about. Uh, we got so much to talk about. Let me just get one other th quick thing in before we take a break, and that is uh, political news. Up in New York State, maybe you heard, the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, whom I like, good friend, Tom Perez, I think made a colossal mistake yesterday. He took sides in the Democratic primary in New York, where Cynthia Nixon is um, actress and uh, with Bernie Sanders' support, I believe. I better double-check that. Without revolution, I think they are supporting her. At any rate, she's a progressive, challenging Andrew Cuomo, who's up for re-election for his third term. Uh, this is a Democratic primary. And Tom Perez yesterday at Hofstra University stood on, ta on stage and endorsed Andrew Cuomo over Cynthia Nixon. Big mistake. Didn't we learn anything in 2016? The Democratic National Committee should not be taking sides during the primary, any primary. They 
did it with for Hillary over Bernie. It cost them a lot of support. It was unfair. They lied about it. They were found out by the emails, and Donna Brazil blew the whistle on them. Uh, and yet here they are making the same mistake all over again. There's no reason for the DNC to get involved in the Democratic primary in New York State. May the best person win. Andrew Cuomo, Cynthia Nixon, may the best person win. The Democratic National Committee is no business being there. They should have stayed out of it. I think it's a huge mistake. And by the way, Keith Ellison, who's the deputy um, national uh, chair, deputy chair of the National uh, Democratic National Committee, uh, Keith Ellison, uh, has also come out and said he opposes this. DNC should never have done it, and he wasn't consulted. Um, I, I this just is going to hurt hurt the Democratic Party, hurt the chances for the Democratic Party to be, to be united in these 2018 elections and going into 2020. Tom Perez, don't know why you did it. Big mistake. Take a quick break. When we come back, where do we go from now? Any chance that there will, in fact, to be a summit, or is it gone, that chance gone forever? Joe Cirincioni joining us from the Plowshares Fund coming up next here on the Bill Press Show. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. Hey, how about it? Friday, May 25. Hello, hello, hello. Great to see you. It is the Bill Press Show. We're coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. And I'm back from the uh, left coast here uh, in the big chair today, where we're brought to you by the International Association of Firefighters. Oh, boy. You know those men and women of the firefighting departments. Uh, you see them rushing by, uh, helping somebody out. Um, at least we do right here on the Hill, because we have a great fire company right across the street. Uh, and wherever they are in this country, they are there on the front lines protecting American families every day under the leadership of President Harold Schaatberger. We salute them, thank them for the support of the program, direct you to their website at iaff.org. A big day yesterday. We thought we were moving toward a summit June 12 in Singapore between the President of the United States and the Chairman of North Korea. No way, yesterday, said Donald Trump. Joe Cirincioni from the Plowshares Fund joins us here in studio. Uh, Joe, were you surprised? Yes. I don't know anybody who wasn't surprised. Nobody saw this coming, including our allies. Uh, they were blindsided. Uh, the Congress was not consulted. There's no indication that the president even uh, consulted his National Security Council, except for a few select members. <laughs> so, yeah, everyone was surprised by this. Right. North. I mean, South Korea <clears throat> found out about it. On the radio, right? Right. So President Moon of South Korea is, is in a meeting with President Trump just two days earlier. He's fly, he flies back to South Korea. He lands, and he's met by this news. Had no indication of it. Had to call an emergency summit at midnight of the National Security Council of South Korea to say, as they said it, to try to make sense of what President Trump has said. Uh, and uh, Donald Trump says he had to do this. Sadly, he says, based on the, quote, <clears throat> tremendous anger and open hostility displayed in the most recent statements from North Korea. It is sort of ironic for Donald Trump to be talking about open, yeah. accusing anybody else of right. open hostility. The master of hy hyperbolic hostility. <laughs> <laughs> right. So he's by by North Korean standards, the remarks of, by North Korea were mild and fairly diplomatic, never attacking 
President Trump himself, criticizing John Bolton for his outrageous demands that he was putting on. He's the one, remember, who started this talk about the Libya model, Mm -hmm. which is particularly insulting to the North Koreans because everybody knows how that ends. Even the Fox Fox and Friends people said it wasn't a wise thing to bring up. I don't know if you saw that particular (laughs) segment because you know how it ends. Muammar Gaddafi is dragged through the streets of, of Libya, sodomized with a bayonet, and then killed. So when Bolton brings this up, this is deeply insulting to the North Koreans. And then Vice President Pence brings it up again, and you hear remarks criticizing the vice president. Yes, insulting him, calling him ignorant, and Mm -hmm. his remarks, ignorant and stupid. But Trump then uses that, I think, as an excuse for doing something that, you know, maybe he got nervous. He realized he was in over his head. But maybe Bolton convinced him, but it was all on Trump. No, nothing was forcing him to do this. There was no surprise action by the North Koreans. There was no plot by the Chinese. You see reporters scrambling to sort of put some kind of reason behind what the president did, some external explanation. But as the Washington Post says in, in their editorial, Mr. Trump blows up the Korea summit. It's all on him. Right. And it's sort of, uh, uh, as some people said, this is kind of the way he ran his real estate business, right? Just sort of <laughs> impulsive. Hey, you know, look how he got into the summit. Yeah. Right. Right. He impulsively gets into it, and he impulsively gets out. And this is, I think, the really scary reality. We're not dealing with just an ideology here. We're not dealing with some clever negotiating trick. Oh, I'm walking away from the table. Make a better offer. Maybe No. We're dealing with a president that is impulsive to the point of being out of control. As one of his confidants says, there is no grand strategy. The president wakes up every morning not knowing what he's going to do. This is a presidency unhinged. What are the long-range implications of this? Um, First of all, let's start about uh, the credibility of the United States. In the toilet. I, 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 I don't know when it's been this low, when we've been... In some very low points with the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, but this is the second major international, let's call it agreement, that he's pulled out of in two weeks. Remember, he just pulled out of the Iran agreement, again, ignoring the vital national security interests of our closest allies, the Europeans, and now he blindsides arguably one of our, well, one of our closest allies in Asia, South Korea, and Japan. Nobody sees it coming. So there's no consultation. There's, there's no agreement. It's on again, off again. Uh, how could you possibly trust the word of the President of the United States after the last two weeks? If you add the Paris Accords to that. Oh, yes, and so this goes way back. So, right. you know, pulling out. But I mean, that's only 18. I mean, so in the first 18 months, Paris Accords, Iran nuclear deal, uh, and now TPP. Let's add NAFTA. Let's just keep adding them. There is yeah. there isn't an international agreement that is safe with this president. So that's that's the the volatility, the uns, the uncertainty. You know, if if the U.S. government was a stock, its price would be dropping. Um, he did speak yesterday, uh, and some people thought this saw this a glimmer of hope. Uh, Peter was talking about <clears throat> that we could leave the door. A little open here, maybe, maybe, maybe down the road. Here he is. It's possible that the existing summit could take place or a summit at some later date. Nobody should be anxious. We have to get it right. 
Uh, yeah, we'll see what happens, as he says, this throwaway answer, right? Saying, talking about that answer um, on the first segment yeah. on the way in. And that is ignorance masquerading as tactic, masquerading as strategy. He does not know what is going on, right? So then yeah. he says, we'll, we'll see what happens. Anything can happen. Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. You know, and he, he, he does a good job. And for a lot of his followers, this seems wise, which should scare us at a whole other <laughs> yeah, level. Right. <laughs> right? But, yeah. but he, he does not know. So is he open to, bring, to having it? Yes, he is. I got to tell you, the line of the day, I thought I had some good lines yesterday when I was doing interviews. Uh, but uh, Wendy Sherman, the former ambassador who's mm. negotiated yeah. with North Korea and with Iran, said the letter that he dictated, and we now know that he wrote this directly, you can just tell, was like a 13-year-old stream of consciousness breakup letter from summer oh. camp. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's your fault. We have to break yeah. up. Mm-hmm. But if you change your mind, <laughs> let me know. Email me. Give me a call. It really is a ve- it's very, very odd. It's great. It's unbelievable to see the, 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 the pathology of this president sort of displayed for you. Uh, the, 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 the desire to be loved the 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 irrational anger it's it it would it would be very very funny if it wasn't putting the national security of the united states at risk by the way you're spot on as soon as i read that letter and i i'm certainly wasn't alone i go oh this is directly from the mouth of donald trump oh yeah oh it was very clear confirmed it's confirmed he dictated that directly Uh, this is not john bolton's letter you know this is this is donald trump's Pathetic plea mixed in. I heard you, Peter, talking mixed in with, by the way, a nuclear threat. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, oh, I was that, just going that, to ask you about too. that. Why does he then feel that he has to talk about how massive our military might be? How massive is what? How about? massive is what is? Yeah, right. <laughs> I know. Right. Exactly. You talk about you talk about your nuclear capacity. Mine's bigger than yours, right? And it's so massive. I pray I never have to use it. Okay? Yeah, right. Just to be clear, well, let's say this phrase again, this is not normal. Presidents of the United States do not make explicit nuclear threats. We shy away from this for very good reason. Donald Trump makes them all the time, and he brings it back again. So we're right back to where we were at the beginning of this year when he was talking about how big his nuclear button was. And Mm -hmm. he was talking about fire and fury. Remember, the name of that book comes from his threats to to destroy North Korea with nuclear fire and fury. Like the world has never seen before. Like the world has never seen. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And in terms of so, you do you agree with what I said that this year, this year at least, they're not going to put this thing back together. Well, yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, they're, they're, see, now we see what happens. Everybody <laughs> picks up the same stupid phrase. All the analysts in Washington. I know we're going to be I'm so, so wise. We'll, we'll see, see what, what happens. happens. Yeah, well, it, right. Look, look. So, so what? You, this is like you know, this is the quantum uncertainty of. The Trump administration, you cannot predict the momentum and position of the particle. So, you know, so we, we, we don't honestly know. And it, it's possible that you could roll this back to maybe Pompeo grabs control again. There's a split here between Bolton, who wanted to wreck the summit, and Pompeo, who the morning, yesterday morning, 
was briefing about how good his relations were, how good the contacts yeah. were. And so Pompeo seems to want this happen. Right. Twice. So it's possible you could roll this back and start a, a semi-normal process of discussions between mid-level and senior officials leading to a summit that caps it off. Which because would there is a take deal. some time. Would take some time. Would take months. So could you do it in this year? The danger is if this thing drifts, it really could drift back to conflict. It could drink, drift back to war. So you don't want this to to go it's, on for d- six d- months unresolved. You you mentioned how he did betray um, President Moon of South Korea and mm. the Prime Minister of Japan, both of whom Abe, yeah, blindsided, had no blindsided. idea this was coming. Uh, did this also is this a pull, pulling the rug out from under President Xi of China? Again, not consulted. There's a small cottage industry in this town that's all about China, and there's a China agenda that gets jammed into everything that happens. So uh, just yesterday, I was on Hardball mm-hmm. with a, an analyst I respect, Gordon Chang. But Gordon Chang sees China's hand behind everything. So you hear a lot about how North Korea's position hardened after Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, met with President Xi. Yeah. And they met twice. Have a, have yeah. A, Right. Not having a map map before, and then they say North Korea's position shifted. No evidence of that. North Korea has been completely consistent on this. <laughs> they've been they're, they're, what they've been talking about denuclearization has been true and from day one when they agreed to the summit to to just yesterday when when they they said, well, let's see if we can't pull this out. I, I don't see China's hidden hand here at all. Uh, there's there's no evidence that that President Trump consulted w- with Xi. Um, I think she is one of the winners here, however, you know, because he was kind of sidelined by this. And this was trying to be a deal between North Korea and the United States directly. Yeah. And, and clearly that didn't work. And she's kind of sitting there saying, ah, you do need me after you all. You do. Right. You do need me. Right. Um, on another front, um, it's been, what, a month now almost since you pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal? Have we seen Plan B? No uh, Plan B. Uh, Mike Pompeo gave a speech Monday, right, where he was supposed to be releasing Plan B. I've been traveling. I lost track of it, but... No, he just just played Martin Luther. He just tacked up 12 demands on the cathedral door. You know, he he said, Iran has to do this. And then he he lists, maybe they're the labors of Hercules. They have to do this. They have to do this. They have to do this, you know. know. But no plan for how we were going to do that because the plan, you see, has to involve allies. It has to involve people who trust us, who are going to go along with us on, say, reimposing sanctions or diplomatically isolating Iran. No evidence that any ally or partner whatsoever uh, has been consulted about um, or is willing to participate in an administration plan. And is the deal with the other partners still in place? So the JICPOA, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran deal, is on life support. It's not over yet. Remember, there is no withdrawal clause. So people say he withdrew from it. No, there's no withdrawal clause to this. This is an international agreement like the climate change accord. So U.S. pulls out, violates the agreement, and the other countries are keeping it alive. And the Europeans just today are, are, are working on terms that could keep Iran in, so that could protect Iran, give it some of the economic benefits it was promised, and in return, Iran would keep the limitations and restrictions on its nuclear program. They have about 100 days to see if they could work that out. 
and meanwhile, um, the United States, uh, President Trump threatened sanctions against European allies if they continue to business with Iran. Yes. So we don't do business with Iran. Our companies, with a couple of exceptions like Boeing, don't do business with Iran. Those contracts are now terminated. The people who do do business, China, India, Japan, the Europeans, the U.S. is threatening to sanction them if they, for example, buy Iranian oil. Well, now you're talking about starting a trade war with our allies over over Iran, another thing that irritates all our allies. And I got to say, for some of the bigger countries, including India and China, there's not a chance in hell that they're going to go along with U.S. sanctions. And the Europeans are trying to find what they call protective um, language, statutes that they will pass that will protect European mm. companies from U.S. sanctions. Right. Um, and Iran... Any indication that they, um, what they plan to do, that they plan to restart their, get their centrifuges back and they have try to get back in the business? They have threatened to do so, and there is an internal fight in Iran. Iran has politics, uh, quite complicated politics, and the hardliners are all saying, we told you so. Mm-hmm. You can't right. trust these people, and so we have to restart our program. The, mo- the moderates, the pragmatists, are saying, no, no, let's wait. Let's see if we can't work out a deal. And what they want is economic benefits. What they were promised, the whole deal was about giving Iran economic benefits, releasing the sanctions, uh, helping improve their economy in exchange for them tearing down and freezing their nuclear program. So if they don't get economic benefits, they're threatening to restart their program. Right. Um, And um, yeah, (laughs) and it's like we've given them a green light to do so. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They could kick the inspectors out and... uh, and we start probably slowly, probably carefully, you know, bring the pot to a boil uh, slowly so that there's no immediate uh, rationale for military strikes. But sooner or later, Israel is going to say, that's it. Uh, I'm going to strike you or more likely will step up its attacks on Iranian positions in Syria. In Syria. And that could f- and, and go into a regional war. And what Trump's action does is just throw gasoline on those existing conflicts. In the meantime, you've got John Bolton in his new position who uh, urged a unilateral strike um, against, preemptive strike against North Korea and also against Iran. Yeah. Uh, I, I haven't had a chance to really uh, get into this yet, but um, just handed uh, Congressman Keith Ellison yes. uh, has introduced an amendment with uh, uh, Walter Jones from North Carolina, Barbara Lee, um, from uh, California, of course, Jim McGovern from Massachusetts, Jan Schakowsky from Illinois, um, a resolution to make it clear that there is no AUMF, no authorization for the use of military force against Iran, just in case. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. This is the first time we're seeing Congress bipartisan uh, amendment with a bipartisan vote vote to tell Donald Trump he does not have the authorization to go to war with Iran. So this is not something that Congress had to do. They did it to clarify that no existing statute, no existing authorization for the use of military force going back to 2001, 2002, 2003, justifies or can authorize a war against Iraq. So Keith Ellison and Walter Jones, a Republican from uh, uh, North Carolina, Carolina. uh, introduced this amendment to the defense authorization bill. It passed just yesterday, 351 to 66, mm-hmm. 351 to 66. So you have the House of Representatives in a huge bipartisan 
show show of support. Don't go to war with Iran, Mr. President. Now it goes to the Senate, and we have to get the Senate to uh, not strip it out of this defense authorization bill, which is the big bill that funds the Pentagon. Right. And a bill that has to pass, right? Has I mean, to pass. Yeah. The, um, that, that, is, that is huge. Some good I news. Real, no, I didn't realize that it passed. Uh, and and you passed s- with, that, with that overwhelming yes. partisan support. Yeah. So, so good on Keith Ellison. So if yeah. you, your listeners, if, if they know Keith, or, you know, thank, thank the congressman for what he does. You know Walter Jones, thank the congressman for what he does. Barbara Lee, Barbara thank Lee. her for what she's done. And Jim McGovern and yeah. Jan Schakowsky. Yeah, heroes. Right. They're, they're the ones who, uh, who sponsored it, right? Exactly. Yeah. But no, it's really significant because this AUMF, which was passed right after uh, September uh, 11, has been used by, by, by George Bush for then going into Iraq, right? Yes. First it was passed for the Taliban, for the war in Afghanistan. But he used it in Iraq. President Obama used it in Libya. Yes. President Obama, I forget, maybe yes. somewhere else. Yes. Everybody has cited well, this. Now we're, every, now we're in a half dozen or more yeah. countries in yeah. Africa based on this. And one of the fears... In Syria. I mean, was, it's all based yes, on this. Right. And one of the fears was that John, John Bolton's plan is to declare parts of the Iranian government, like the Revolutionary Guard, terrorist organizations. Oh, so if you now call them terrorist organizations, that gets you back to that authorization for the use of military force to go out against terrorist uh, and enemies of the United States. So that was the fear. That's why Keith Ellison, Walter Jones, Barbara Lee, et cetera, put, put this amendment in. Extremely important development. Right. Now goes to the Senate. Yes. Yeah. That is huge. Right. Good news for, yeah. for a change. Yeah. So sh- Congress uh, showing some spine. Right. Um, did you... Did you did you have a chance? I'm intrigued by Donald Trump threatening yesterday that he might levy 25 percent tariffs against foreign cars. Uh, wait, under the rubric of national security, right? A president does have an, in the trade laws. I guess if if you declare this is a national security issue, you can unilaterally place tariffs on certain products. Yes. How can you? How do you? justify that having somebody driving a Toyota threatens our national security. You know, over the years, presidents have stretched national defense in some good ways. I went to school on a national student defense loan. You know, I drove to school on a highway built by Eisenhower under the National Defense Transportation Act that built the superhighways Mm -hmm. we we now have. But, But I haven't heard of a national defense tariff on automobiles. I mean, his argument, of course, is somehow this is good for American auto workers, that we're going to make foreign cars um, more expensive, and so therefore we'll raise the market for uh, American cars. That may or may not be a good thing to do. It's not my field. But national defense? No. This has nothing to do with national defense. It just seems a real stretch to me. Not to mention, as we did earlier, that... It's just hard to tell what's a foreign car today and what's not because there's so many car, foreign cars, either the parts for them right. made in the United States or the cars themselves right. manufactured. Right. I have two States. cars. One's an Acura which, and one's a Ford. You know, so. Yeah. And you know what? That Ford probably has lots of parts uh, it, from Mexico. It was made in Mexico. Now that yes, you mention yes, it, no, it was yeah. made in Mexico. Damn right it was made so in Mexico. So what is that? Is that a foreign car? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. No, no, exactly. Uh, I think you've been in maybe once since, but we just have about a minute and a half. We still have not seen, I think, all the 
repercussions are going to come from moving the embassy. Oh, no, no, no. To the, Jerusalem. Which, of course, is another blow to American credibility. You know, who, Paraguay moved its embassy, Guatemala might have moved its and the United States of America. Again, none of our allies are doing this. Everybody warned the president against it. Um, it, it inflamed tensions. It wasn't the cause of the Gaza protests, <coughs> but it certainly inflamed the, those protests. It discredited the United States as a peace broker. This is the traditional role. We try to stay between the Palestinians and the Israeli to have some credibility as a moderator. Jared Kushner has yet to unveil what I understand is his 30-page peace plan. There actually is a peace plan that they will drop at some point dead on arrival. No hmm. chance because of the moves like moving the embassy to Jerusalem. This this does not help the. Pro- they claim right. This is going to help the pro- help bring the parties together. It 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 kills the process before it begins. God, sorry. Uh, well, at least we have this House vote yes to hang on to. Joe. And we have to encourage our our warriors in the Congress who are doing the right yeah, thing. Yeah, make sure the senators have passed this amendment as well. Joe, seriously, great to see you. Thank you. It's plowshares.org. Don't forget. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Bill. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hey, you know that uh, big summit in uh, Singapore, June 12? Forget about it. Yeah, Donald Trump says, I ain't going. Hello, everybody. No surprise. What do you say? It is The Bill Press Show on a Friday, May 25. So good to see you today. A uh, couple of days off uh, on the West Coast, uh, still part of the uh, book tour. I think that might have been the last stop for this book tour. Uh, but the book still lives uh, from the left, Life in the Crossfire, BillPressShow.com. Check it out. Great to be back with you. Thanks to uh, Peter Ogburn and uh, Jason Dick for filling in while I was gone. And, boy, uh, it, you know, it always happens. I go away and the whole world just blows up. Uh, and it was it did so on two fronts over Spygate, which is what Donald Trump calls it, his outrageous and unsubstantiated claim that the FBI planted a spy in his campaign. Uh, and, of course, yesterday the news that he was pulling the plug on the summit with North Korea. A lot to get through. Chris Liu is going to help us out, former uh, Undersecretary of Labor, a Deputy Secretary of Labor under the uh, Obama administration. It's always good to see you, Chris. It's Thanks great for being here. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. It's always fun. And uh, lots and lots to uh, talk about and lots you are going to want to comment on. Uh, send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, and we will get right into it. Chris and I will be joined a little bit later by Rebecca Vallis from the Center for American Progress as well. Chris, you and I have a lot to talk about, but first... <laughs> 
Theater is the full court press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Yes. When you think about the biggest media companies in the country, you think of what? Walt Disney, right? They own Marvel and the Star Wars franchise, not to mention all the other Disney stuff that they own. You mentioned, you can probably think of Comcast. They are number two and number three. There is a new number one in terms of market value. It is. I know. Netflix. Netflix, right. Netflix is the number one media company in the country by market value. Now, they, listen to this. Their market cap stands at $153 billion. <laughs> and they, they now have a new producer of products there as well. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's right, actually. They, should, they pointed out that Netflix has gained 123% in the past year. 123%. While Disney uh, and Comcast have lost huh. part of it. So, like, Netflix is just <laughs> continuing to zoom up, man. It's c- kind of crazy. Uh, Twitter was – a lot of people look at Twitter as sort of the role that they played in the 2016 election. They took a lot of ads from companies that weren't necessarily based here in America. Mm-hmm. Well, yesterday, oh, yeah. they rolled out some stricter rules for political advertising. The whole point here is to try and increase transparency and to sort of curb some of the manipulation that we saw during the 2016 election. So, for example – they are now going to require advertisers that are running political campaign ads for federal elections to identify themselves, and then they also have to certify that they are located in the United States. In other words, no more campaign ads from Russia. Yeah, yeah. Which we One know happened, which is what we know happened back in 2016. Well, unless it's funneled through the NRA, and that's a whole other issue. That, that, that is, <laughs> that's actually a really good point, Chris. Uh, They're trying to clean up the social media platform, obviously, after everything that happened in 2016 and with the uh, uh, Russian interference. And by the way, good morning to Ben Lecomte. Ben Lecomte, he's a 50-year-old Frenchman who now lives in Texas. Back, this is nuts, back in 1998, he became the first person to swim across the Atlantic. And now he says he he wants to swim across the Pacific. He wants to swim across. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. He's going to take off. He's going to leave off of the coast of Japan and start swimming. It's going to take him six months. No. To make the swim. Longer than that. I've never done it, so I'm not going to act <laughs> like I know. But it, you're welcome. I didn't think to. anybody had ever swum across the Atlantic. He's he's the guy. He did it, it back it's got to be in one of those specially fitted boats where you got a boat around him, and then you. Yeah. You know, you take breaks, you put him back in the boat, and then you go back to where you started. That's absolutely correct, yeah. actually. Yeah. yeah. This is the Bill Press Show. Yep, indeed. You can uh, go back to your regular plans for June 12. You're not going to have to sit in front of the TV monitors watching the summit in Singapore because it's not going to happen. Hello, everybody. What do you say on a Friday, May 25? Yeah, maybe they're calling it the art of the no deal. Uh, This is the Bill Press Show, bringing you up to date on all the news of the day as we do uh, every day, Monday through Friday. From our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., just down the street from the United States Capitol Building, the Library of Congress, the Supreme Court, and all that good stuff. Great place to be. Great place to join you uh, to talk about the news of the day. Today, with the help 
of our friend Chris Liu. Here is a friend of Bill, former Deputy Secretary of Labor uh, under President Obama. Chris, it's always good to see you. It's fun being here. Thank you. Thank you for uh, coming in. And remember, we love hearing from you uh, on Twitter, at BP Show. Uh, and Chris, we've been at it for a little bit here already this morning, so um, I think we might have a few comments out there. Peter? A couple <laughs> of comments, not only on Twitter, at BP Show, but remember we have a chat room, youtube.com yes, yes. slash the Bill Press Show. Remember the the, the Bill Press Show. Uh, one commenter saying Trump was never going to meet with the leader of North Korea in his heart. He knows that he can't converse with other people, not to mention other world leaders. <laughs> and Captain Serkin says, boy, I'm really getting tired of all this winning. Remember, Donald Trump said we were going to get tired of all this winning. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, may, maybe not. Also, uh, we are on Twitter at BP show at BP show. Joey saying Donald Trump wants to expel United States citizens that don't stand for the anthem. Just think what he would do for a five-time draft dodger. Uh, Good point. Good point. If you have a comment, find us on social media, either on Twitter at BP Show or in our chat room, youtube.com slash the Bill Price Show. Yeah, you know, uh, let's start there because we haven't talked about it yet today, Chris. So the president gave another interview to Fox and Friends. Right. I mean, it's the uh, Donald Trump show uh, every morning. We know that. Uh, any rate. And, and it, he, he got off in a lot of different directions. But, of course, he had to comment on the uh, NFL. The owners voted yesterday that uh, they're going to require, force NFL players to stand for the national anthem or else be, what, thrown out of the game or punished? Well, so or it's, what was it's the actually, punishment? They, they actually haven't come up with the, the punishment yet. Oh. But th- there's an idea that's been floated that they will put a 15-yard penalty on the team. So if you do kneel or protest in any way during the anthem. Well, that's outrageous. They'll immediately give your team a (laughs) 15-yard penalty. It is such an act of moral cowardice. I mean, this was not an issue, frankly. Uh, before Donald Trump made it an issue, what I what I do think is in, in a bit no, of no, you're right, you're in, absolutely in, right. In a bit of courage, is I don't know if you've seen the uh, owner of the Jets has said he will pay the fines uh, if the team gets fined. And and what's ironic is that Woody Johnson, Trump's ambassador to yeah. UK, is the former chairman of yeah. the New York Jets. And so even Trump people thinking this is outrageous. And Twitter's been lighting up. Chris Long and others. Uh, players have been speaking out about this. The other, the other thing that I found incredible. I don't know if you saw the study yesterday, and because um, it implicates part of DC, the NFL hired the Glover Park Group. Did you see the story? Hired the Glover Park Group to do a public opinion poll about whether Colin Kaepernick should be signed with the team, and whether players should be disciplined for taking a knee. Uh, and, and so it, it's incredible to me that we are. Again, I, I'm not. I have many friends at the Glover Park Group. I'm not criticizing them for taking the work, but the idea that we're polling the people about whether speech should be punished is antithetical to what we believe in this country. We protect all speech in this country, and we especially protect speech that's not popular speech. And if you go back through the history of Supreme Court cases, whether it's you know the, the Vietnam protesters, whether it's uh, people uh, re- uh, saying for religious reasons they don't recite the Pledge of Allegiance. There's a long line of juris- uh, uh, jurisprudence here that yeah, we protect right. all this. No, exactly. And um, <laughs> well, so Donald Trump and in his, as far as he goes on the on the uh, on the Fox Fox and Friends. Um, if we hear that clip from, he's talking to Brian Kilmeade yeah. uh, Fox Fox and Friends yesterday. You have to stand proudly 
for the national anthem. Well, you shouldn't be playing. You shouldn't be there. Maybe you shouldn't be in the country. Yeah, I mean, not even, not even in the country, right? No, so, I mean that's it's. I, you know, I mean, he's obviously this is part of a, a longer term strategy of saying who is a real citizen versus who is not a real citizen. Yeah, uh, I'll sh- way, go ahead. Peter. I was going to say, by, by the way, as much as we beat up on Donald Trump for this, and we should. Uh, the NFL is not a oh. good organization. No. no. They are a bad no. organization. No. I'm not talking about the players. I'm talking about the owners. And look, the, All way of the, owners... the way they're handling this, to end up this way, is yeah. just, they, I mean, it is a total cave-in to Donald Trump. It, it absolutely is. All of they the just own... ought to stand up and say, hey, you yeah. know, look. All of the owners uh, supported Donald Trump in the election, right? They, a lot of them gave massive amounts of money to uh, to Donald Trump during the election. And you think you look think of how long we've been doing this show and all the issues we talked about with the NFL with players that oh, were beating yeah, women yeah. and multiple multiple they 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 still don't have a great policy in place for players who have been arrested and accused of domestic assault or sexual violence or anything like that but they got this together pretty damn quick about yeah. the kneeling for the anthem right That's I, and I just want to point out related. Uh, Huffington Post on the front page this morning points out police killed at least 378 black Americans since Colin Kaepernick took a knee. And and let's con- uh, so there's there's something going on here that well, he was right. And, and let's contrast again. I I'm a huge football fan, but let's contrast the speed at which they moved on this issue versus the lack of speed that they moved on head injuries and how that issue still remains out there. Yeah. Uh, um. Another issue that we haven't talked about yet this morning. Um, you worked at the, the Department of Labor. Yes. With Secretary Tom Perez. Yeah, I know where you're going on this one. Right. <laughs> uh, and I, I'm, a, I'm a DNC member, too. Okay. All right. <laughs> whom I like. Uh, I think in terms of he's done some really good things in terms of uh, energizing the DNC. And particularly, I love the his, his slogan, every zip code counts. And we have a... Candidate, Democratic candidate running in Absolutely. every state legislative district, every congressional district. This this is great. Donald Tom Perez yesterday endorses Andrew Cuomo for governor, re-election <laughs> of governor of New York State, where there is a Democratic primary going on, a pretty vibrant primary between Cynthia Nixon and Andrew Cuomo. Why is the DNC taking sides in a Democratic primary, and should they? Uh, I, look, I you know Tom, is, <laughs> you're putting me in a tough spot here. Look, I, Tom is a very close friend, and I would simply say that again, the action he took in in endorsing Governor Cuomo is no different than the action that Hillary Clinton took and Joe Biden took. That being said, one could say that there is a distinction because Tom is the head of the party. Yes, yes. That being yeah. said, Andrew Cuomo is the governor of the you know second or third largest state in the country. Uh, look, I I I, I think the lesson. Uh, let me say it this way. I think the lesson we've learned from 2016 is that it's not just the DNC, but it's probably the DCCC, the DSCC, should probably just get out of the business of endorsing in any primaries. And you've seen this play out right now through the the, the congressional uh, campaign season where when the DCCC has gotten involved, uh, as often as when their, uh, their preferred person wins, the preferred person does not win. I think the challenge we have, and again, now uh, you can clearly tell I'm deflecting a little bit here, um, w- the situation we have right now in California is such that we have so with the jungle primaries, it is potentially uh, there. It is possible that Democrats could get closed out um, of some of those uh, of some of those races that are very winnable. 
but as to what uh, Chairman yeah. Perez did tomorrow, I'll defer to Tom on that one. <laughs> but you did. Uh, come on, Chris. Come on, Chris. <laughs> Moral courage here. Uh, <laughs> you know, look, I mean, but, I, I, but no, I, I really I just want to say flat. I, I like Tom. Yeah. This was, I think, a huge mistake. And I think it, it negates the lesson that I thought we had learned from 2016 right. and the DNC clearly putting its finger on one side right. of the scale for Hillary Clinton, which we learned from the emails in which we Bernie complained about. Everybody said, no, he's wrong. We learned he was it was happening from the emails. And Donna Brazil in her book just says flat out, yeah, the DNC was wrong. So I thought we had learned a lesson for the DNC. Right. I understand, by the way, the D triple C congressional committee. I would say they ought to stay out of primaries too, but I understand more where they would get in because they—that's their full job to win that race, or the Senate campaign committee. But the DNC, particularly a primary like this, I think the DNC would say we're we're here for a Democrat, Democratic governor of, right. of New York. You decide who your candidate right. is. We're a full bore for that candidate. Well, trust me, Tom has heard about it from inside the DNC, including from Keith Ellison, and he's heard it from yes. a lot of people on the outside. And so, uh, I did see where a couple of other DNC members from New York said we should not be involved. In yeah, this I party. was at an event last night, DNC event last night, and oh. I heard it as well too. So. Oh, you did, yes. yeah. And uh, the deputy chair or co-chair, whatever, uh, mm -hmm. Keith Ellison, uh, put out a statement saying the DNC yeah. should 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 not be endorsing. Um, just a little while ago here, I saw on the cables, it was expected to happen this morning, uh, Harvey Weinstein uh, turned himself in to New York uh, uh, authorities. Um, he is still like the poster boy, if you will, of Absolutely. the Me Too movement. Right. You I mean, know, and it is a remarkable moment for a person who three, five years ago openly said that he was untouchable. And that was that was the way that he used his leverage over these women. And he could make or break their careers. He was very flat out about that. And, um, you know, this is a transformative moment for uh, American society, American culture, American values. Um, and I don't think we are at the end of this yet. And obviously, it's been playing out in the world of politics. Uh, and there's still much more that needs to be happening. There's a sexual harassment bill that's going through the Senate at the moment. Uh, and by the way, it passed the Senate finally, right? And it took a long time, but they, they, they did they did uh, act on that legislation. And, and make no mistake. It not, that's not as strong as it should be. And not as strong as it should be, but make no mistake, that passed because of women senators in both parties rallying behind it. And it <laughs> speaks more broadly to the fact that, you know, we, we have a better government, we have a better society when we have a more diverse leadership in these positions. Right, right. And uh, and it's just, I, I think that what hap what's happening with, with Harvey Weinstein today will even further uh, embolden women who have been victims, right, that to come forward and something can happen. Absolutely. Right? You're not just going to be ignored anymore or or, um, or, or um, kind of um, treated badly because you because you're willing to tell the truth, right? Yeah. yeah. We still obviously have ways to go, and I think when you look at a lot of the poll, there still seems to be not only a generational gap, there is you know obviously a gap between men and women and their values and their views on this, but uh, we are making progress, and it's amazing to see what's happened simply over the last year. Right. Got overshadowed yesterday a little bit by what Donald Trump did related to the summit. We'll get to that in just a second. But he's still, he, the president, is still insisting that the, accusing the FBI of planting a spy uh, inside of his campaign. Um, 
thereby uh, in, you know, creating a scandal which he calls Spygate, <laughs> the biggest political scandal ever in American history. I feel like whenever he says that, we just need to give him a history lesson about, you know, we, we could, I, look, we, we, let's just go a little bit past Watergate and find a couple more scandals for him to refer to. But, uh, no, it is, it, it's classic Trump. Uh, hyperbole. It's it's classic Trump obfuscation. I mean, on so many levels, this is disturbing. Uh, you know, for me, uh, you know, I started my career 20 years ago, my government career 20 years ago, as a lawyer on the House Oversight Committee. I got top secret clearance. And the very first thing I was taught when I was briefed on my security clearance is that by all means, we protect intelligence sources and methods. Um, the people that are providing intelligence to us and how they're providing it. And you have a president of the United States and you have a House Intelligence Committee chairman who were intent on disclosing that information. And you've got a complicit uh, media, right-wing media, that is doing the exact same thing. What is striking – so the the fact that – there were so many aspects of this that are troubling. The fact that they were willing to, to disclose information about the informant uh, and how he uh, how he accessed information or, or was able to um, – uh, his – how he accessed Trump officials. Um, there was the fact that originally the briefing was only supposed to be for Devin Nunes and Trey Gowdy. They yeah. ended up inviting yeah. uh, uh, the, the, the gang of eight there, uh, the leadership as well as the head of the uh, House and Senate Intelligence Committees. The fact that the president's lawyer was at the meeting is troubling. Uh, but at the end of the day, this actually seems like it was a big nothing. Uh, Adam Schiff came out afterwards and said, look, there's no infor- there's there's no indication that a spy was put within the Trump campaign. And frankly, Devin Nunes hasn't said anything. And, you know, if there was something even remotely interesting or something remotely that he could twist, he would have leaked this in a second. Uh, but the fact that that this is all done as a way to discredit the investigation, uh, the, the, the Mueller investigation is troubling on so many levels. Yeah. And the media seems to be buying into it, too, uh, which. Um uh, not entirely, but but there's, they continue talking about it and giving it credence that something may have happened. When, in fact, what did happen was that the FBI was looking into the Trump campaign because they'd been given information that the people in the Trump campaign were playing footsie with the Russians to get their help in the election. And, and this is a— Carter class- Page, right. George Papadopoulos— those two, at least. And, and this is a classic case where, in many ways, what they were trying to do is to uh, reach out to those people to find out what the Russians were doing, uh, it, potentially as a way to protect the Trump campaign, if they were not aware that their campaign had been infiltrated by these people. And uh, the context, by all according to press accounts, seemed to have been fairly innocuous. There wasn't anybody uh, on Trump's payroll who was a paid informant. But yet, this thing continues to get spun out in Twitter and right-wing media. Right. Um, why didn't James, if they were, they were investigating Hillary Clinton. We knew about that. They were investigating Donald Trump. Why didn't James Comey tell us about that? Well, this is, this is the, that's my beef with it. Well, exactly. I mean, and I think, I think the logic here of the Trump conspiracy theory doesn't even hold up for that reason alone. The fact that the FBI was out to get him actually makes no sense. Every single thing the FBI did before election day was to Donald Trump's advantage and to Hillary Clinton's disadvantage. Exactly. No, totally. He should be thanking the FBI, not not attacking them. Absolutely. Because certainly, I'm not saying for sure that the outcome of the election would have been different, but I do think if people knew there were two criminal investigations going on, one against each candidate, it would have 
but have had some impact. Oh, absolutely. And, and in fact, we, we know full well that when uh, the uh, leadership of the intelligence community went to uh, uh, McConnell, the, the Senate and House leadership uh, before Election Day, McConnell basically said, you, you know, we're not going to give you authorization to say anything because we don't want to be seen as politicizing this election. And so Mitch McConnell, in many ways, sat on whatever information they had before Election Day. Right. It, it is funny how the, everything with Donald Trump has to be the biggest and the best or the biggest and the worst of of all of ever. Right. It's like started with the inauguration. Crowd. Right. Yeah. And, and you've and seen it, this. And again, to tie it all cabinet, back. the cabinet right. is the, the smartest ever, smartest ever, ever in the history of the planet. Right? right. Our administration has accomplished more in 17 months than any administration ever in history. I mean, ever. Every statement is bigger and better than ever. Right? Well, and it, again, you see, and, and it's interesting. You see this playing out with this uh, yesterday's news about the North Korea uh, failed deal. Look, I, I I give him credit for being willing to speak. Uh, I don't know that he was prepared. I don't know that the logistical work in advance uh, was done clearly. Uh, and so, if 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 he was about to walk into a trap, he probably was right to step out of it. That being said. You know, he could have taken a lesson from how sen- uh, how President Obama did the Iran nuclear deal. He went in uh, with, uh, with with clear expectations about what could and could not be done. Um, he didn't overplay his hand. He didn't uh, uh, unrealistically raise expectations. And he was able to get a deal done. And we now we can obviously quibble about uh, that the deal could have been done better, but he got something done. And I think when you're Donald Trump and you come in and you start to say, I'm going to meet with him, I'm going to get my Nobel Peace Prize, you set unrealistic <laughs> expectations that are that, that, that are bound to fail uh, when countries are looking out for their own geopolitical interests. Right. Um, I was talking about Joe Sirensoni a little bit about this before, but so you're somewhere out there in the world and you want to, maybe you're thinking about maybe making some kind of a deal with the United States. After Donald Trump pulls out of the Iran or the Paris Accords, the Iran nuclear deal, now the North Korean summit, not to mention TPP and NAFTA, how can you trust him? And, and let's add on the domestic side his inability to get an immigration deal done, to do nothing on guns. Uh, yeah, gets right. nothing done on healthcare. Uh, yeah, I mean he's he's been he's been quite good at breaking deals. He's been really quite bad at trying to make deals. And part of it is his word. Uh, you know, when 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 it's not just the president that becomes an un, unreliable trading or negotiating partner. It's the United States becomes unreliable. Um, and, and what's troubling is we've got the G7 coming up in about a week and a half, uh, and you've really got you know the other six countries uh, aligned against the United States at this point, and that's a pretty remarkable uh, occurrence. And I think that's you know, and I think when the U.S. walks away from the Iran nuclear deal, even though you know uh, the U.K., France, Germany have are, are all heavily invested in this. Uh, the likelihood of our allies trusting us, much less an adversary wanting to do a deal with us, becomes much, much smaller. How do you account for the fact, people keep asking me, and I'm interested in what you say, about why Donald Trump's numbers, it, given the fact that he's accomplished absolutely nothing, um, why his numbers are keep coming, not that they're that high, but they're you know early, low 50s now maybe, instead of 
35. Approval rating. Well, I look. I I still think there. I mean, not that I think. I mean, I think you know when you look at the Nate Silver, he's the Nate Silver aggregation. He's probably mm-hmm. within a thirty-eight to forty-two percent range, and he's probably now at the high end, forty-two, forty-three, forty-four. Uh, you know, look. Some have him a little higher. Some but, have him a little higher. Yeah. That wonderful Rasmussen poll always has him a little yeah. bit higher. Uh, <laughs> you know, look. Uh, what's interesting is how the Republican Party has become Donald Trump. You know, if you had gone back mm-hmm, six months, mm-hmm, a year ago, mm-hmm. the idea that Donald Trump would sit across the table from North Korea uh, would have been antithetical to most Republicans. But when Donald Trump makes the move to go in that direction, uh, the ba- his base follows him. And when he calls it off to, uh, yesterday, his base will follow him that this was a good idea. I mean, literally, I mean, I keep going back to, the, the, you know, we, we, that famous statement he made during the campaign that he could go off on Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody mm. and he wouldn't lose any supporters. And day I think after, it's the truest thing he ever said. Day, day after day, that is being true. That, that is being really? proven true on so many different fronts. Right. Particularly, it seems to me, if uh, he continues to uh, be anti-immigrant. I mean, I think that's that's that, that's his um, the, the ace up his sleeve with his with his base. Anti-immigrant, anti-people of color, and make no mistake, that is what this NFL national anthem is all about. Wow. Yeah. There, <laughs> that, if you look at that racist theme, it goes yeah. through Charlottesville, it yeah. goes through DACA, it goes to the NFL, goes through a lot of his policies. You know, yeah. that being said, look, I, I think we are in this interesting period of time now where, you know, the one thing Donald Trump doesn't want is to be seen as a failure. He clearly has failed on North Korea, in part because of his unrealistic expectations. Uh, then we go back to the bread and butter issues that affect the American people. I'm spending a lot of time this before Memorial Day weekend thinking about what gas prices are going to mean for the average American. And by all accounts, they've essentially wiped out whatever tax cut benefit that most lower income people have received. And oh, then, that's a good point. You yeah. Know, whatever whatever little bit that, that they got as a result of the GOP tax yeah. bill, they're paying for pardon me, in higher gas prices. Yeah, today. No, absolutely. And when you look at the what's fascinating is when you look at the fact that we're at unemployment numbers not seen since two thousand, when you ask the average American in terms of the right track, wrong track number or in terms of whether they think that they're feeling better economically, the numbers are still pretty dismal right now. And so I have a piece I'm working on right now that. So kind of, why is that? Because if you look at most indicators, like yeah. unemployment, right? Um, most indicators show that the economy is good. Yeah. So I'm going to preview a piece that I have coming that. out probably yeah. in the next couple of days that looks at this. That looks at the old adage about it's the economy stupid, and maybe it's really not the economy stupid this year. And whether it's because you know uh, labor force participation hasn't budged, whether it's the wages have been stagnant, or whether the cost of every other thing that people are paying for, whether it's gases or we haven't even talked about Obamacare premiums yet now and how they're, I think they're going to average like a 30% increase in places like, you know, Virginia and Maryland, like uh, I think Care First is asking for a 91% increase uh, in uh, in Maryland. And so the cost of everything else has gone up right now. And I think the challenge is, um, yes, economic numbers are good, uh, but they may not tell the full story about how people are feeling in their day-to-day lives. Is this gas price thing just um, yet again, uh, as we get into summer, prices go up, and then because the, <laughs> because 
the ga- the gas companies know, or the the, uh, the oil industry knows that uh, people are traveling. They're going to be buying more gas anyway. It, and we it's can obviously make more higher money. demand. It's I you know I apparently has to do with when refineries you know do a switch over. But, but it, it's uh, also uh, true that you know pulling out of the Iran deal has actually caused a noticeable spike in gas prices. Um, and um, anyway, so look, I mean, but we've been in politics long enough. This is a game. Uh, that people yeah. play on both yeah. sides. And I think most people understand that the president, most presidents don't have a lot of power over gas prices, except Donald Trump in 2012 said Barack Obama should be fired because of high gas prices. And so, you know, <laughs> what comes around goes around. There's always a tweet, Chris. There's always a tweet. Always a tweet. <laughs> Boy, you know it. Uh, you, what you say, what goes around comes around. I was, I was thinking the other day with, with clearly... And back to the Spygate here for just a second. What Donald Trump is trying to do is undermine in any way he can the credibility of Robert Mueller, right? Uh, and, and so that whatever he comes out with, right, fewer people may may believe it. Right? I mean, it's right. that remarkable like candid quote he gave to Leslie Stahl that she came out the other right. day and said, look, right. I've, you know, the reason yeah. I attack the media is so that when you run a negative story, people aren't going to believe it. Right, right. But it seems to me that Democrats should recognize what Donald Trump is up to because in many ways, Democrats did the same thing with Ken Starr. Uh, but the th- the difference is Ken Starr was playing <laughs> politics. Robert Mueller is not. I mean, Ken Starr came out of the Federalist Society. He was clearly and, out and, to get and, and Bill Clinton. And let's never forget what the underlying crime crime yes, was in yes. Lewinsky versus what the underlying crime is here. Exactly. Thank you. All right. Moving on here on to some other issues, particularly some of the financial uh, issues that are going on. Um, what is the Senate doing? And what's the Congress doing? Uh, weakening the Dodd-Frank legislation. Rebecca Vallis joins us from the Center for American Progress, Vice President for Poverty to, to Prosperity Program over at the Great Center for American Progress. Chris Lewis stays with us as a friend of Bill. You stay with us as well. Quick break, and we'll all be back together here. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. How about it on Friday, May 25? It is the uh, Bill Press Show coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and our studio on Capitol Hill, where we're brought to you today by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, those good men and women of the Teamsters Union under President Jim Hoffa. We all live better because of their good work uh, on many different fronts. Check out their website at teamster.org. Here in studio with us, Chris Liu, former Deputy Secretary of Labor, um, and as a friend of Bill, here for the entire hour. And we're joined now from the Center for American Progress, Rebecca Vallis, whose long title is Vice President for Poverty to Prosperity Program. It's a big business card. Hello, Rebecca. Nice to see you. Great to be here. Thanks so much, Bill, and good to see you, Chris. I have to be honest. I've had longer titles, so it could have been worse. (laughs) It could have been worse. It could have been worse. Yeah, okay. You're both going to have to excuse me because there's a a, a bit of a a little item in the news we haven't had a chance to talk about this morning. Peter, I know, talked about it uh, yesterday, I think, with Jason Dick while I was gone. But I lived for several years in uh, Los Angeles. In the great city of West Hollywood, mm-hmm. which made history yesterday. I know this. Because they gave the key of the city 
to Stormy Daniels. Stormy Daniels. <laughs> Here she is accepting the key of the city of West Hollywood. The community of West Hollywood was founded more than three decades ago on the principle that everyone should be treated with dignity and fairness and decency. More All than right. three decades ago. More than three decades. That city's been around a long sure, time. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, I guess it sounds like a long time if you're a young person, right? Three decades ago. Longer than I've been born. Exactly, right? <laughs> yeah, right. I guess so. Yeah. But it's a great little city nestled in between Hollywood and Beverly Hills. Uh, a beautiful city. Sunset Strip, all West Hollywood. A lot of great restaurants, a lot of great clubs, a lot of great sex clubs, <laughs> and it's uh, a very excuse, excuse, a lot of great sex clubs. I've seen them there. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> that's all. Checked them out on. Yeah. I feel like this segment escalated quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just walking by. You sure, yeah, 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 yeah. There, yeah, you're yeah, a curious right. guy. Sure, I get it. Uh, and when we went, moved in, we were told. I remember that the city was. Uh, it's a very open city. There are 30,000 people, and people used to say, okay, there are 10,000 gays, there are 10,000 Russian emigres. There's a whole, the, the stores there have signs in English and Russian in the, uh, in, the, in the windows. Go to the farmer's market. Everything, all the prices were in Russian and, and English, and 10,000 others. But we go. were one of the others there, anyhow. Uh, let's get on to some more serious business, like the farm bill. Uh, what happened with that? You were very involved in that. Yeah. Well, so I think how how big was it? How bad was it? Well, so it, I think to start telling the story, you have to start with the tax cuts that Republicans just gave to the wealthiest people in this country and to wealthy corporations. Right now, they're scrambling to figure out how they pay for it because they blew a huge one point nine trillion dollar hole in the deficit, and so that's why we're seeing them continue to go after Americans' health insurance. Now they've said, you know what, we're not we're not just going to stick with trying to take away health insurance from tens of millions of Americans. We're going to go after after your food too. And so what they cooked up, so to speak, is a farm bill, an incredibly partisan farm bill, that would take away food assistance from two million Americans. And it would strip 265,000 kids in this country from their free school meals. Um, so that's what this farm bill would do. Um, and, and it's all in the wake of, of making really rich people richer. So now to, to cut to present day, that bill, which was incredibly partisan, actually went down in flames on the House floor last Friday. It seemed while it was happening like Republicans didn't even know they didn't have the votes. They looked somewhat shocked. And it went down 198 to 213. Um, and uh, uh, there's a lot of talk in the wake of that bill going down in flames last week that, oh, it was the House Freedom Caucus who brought the bill down. And they certainly played a role in terms of playing some politics that had to do with some, um, uh, some immigration uh, components of what's going on. But the real story here is that Democrats voted completely unified against this bill. Not a single Democrat voted for it because it was so cruel and heartless. And that's why we ended up seeing the bill go down. It was Democrats, along hmm. with about 10 moderate Republicans who killed this bill. Uh, Rebecca, can I ask you, I mean, I think this follows, I mean, it's obviously not only a quest to find money. It's this, this perpetual idea that we need to add work requirements to everything. You see this under Medicaid. Obviously, you see it in the SNAP program right now. 
but I don't think people understand it. If you don't have nutrition, if you don't have healthcare, you probably can't get a job. And I think the underlying theory of what they're doing here doesn't even make sense. No, that's exactly right. I mean, I think people understand when you put it in common sense terms, taking away someone's food and making them hungrier isn't going to help them find a job any faster. <laughs> that's not how it works. That may be the magical thinking of Paul Ryan, who's been dreaming of not just taking away health insurance, but also apparently food and housing and everything else it takes to survive from people since he was drinking out of kegs in college, right? He tells us that every chance he gets. Um, but that's not how it works. Actually, it's the it's the opposite of that. When you have adequate nutrition, when you have access to health insurance and can be healthier, when you have safe and stable housing, that's what puts you in a position to be able to find work, thrive in the workplace, and you actually, research tells us, end up having higher employment and earnings when you have those basics. That's the opposite of what the Republican agenda is, which is basically to kick people when they're down and blame them for being poor. Well, I remember that wasn't that long ago, correct me if I'm wrong, that the, the two bills that everybody, that are always bipartisan bills and people passed almost, almost automatically, the transportation bill and the farm bill, right? They were like no-brainers. What happened? No, that's exactly right. They've I become mean, political... Right. Weapons now, I guess. That's huh? exactly right, Bill. Yeah. And, and the Farm Bill, which has traditionally been bipartisan, as yeah, you know, right. this is the first time we've seen it run uh, um, awry like this because what Republicans did Tried in the House, that, huh? they, yeah. they kept Democrats out of the process. They wrote this incredibly harsh and cruel and partisan bill. And then they sprung it on Dems who said, no, that's not the kind of country I want to live in where we're going to let millions of Americans, particularly older Americans, people with disabilities, children, we're not going to live in a country where we let those people starve, and that's what this bill would do. And so what you ended up seeing was completely unprecedented for every single House Democrat to vote against this bill. Now, it's important that people not think this is the end of the fight. That bill going down in flames in the House was a big deal, and, and it was a huge defeat and failure for Republicans, but they're going to try again. And so what they actually did was they they sort of did some uh, technical maneuvering to allow themselves to bring the bill back up for a another vote and try again in June. Meanwhile, the Senate is sort of doing its own thing in a bipartisan process. So there's a lot left to come in this fight. And we need folks who are weighing in with their members of Congress to continue to keep those calls up because that's what helped make this bill go down in the House was really people weighing in with their members of Congress and saying, hands off SNAP, hands off the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program that helps millions of families put food on the table. I, you know, there is this disconnect, and we, we've talked about this every day since January 20th of 2017. When you think about the SNAP program, it's not going just to inner cities. It is going to rural areas in red states. And I, there's this disconnect that somehow this is helping this other, the, the proverbial, you know, uh, welfare folks. That's not who this helps. No, that, that's exactly right. I think there's this, Paul Ryan and his colleagues in Congress, they rely on and, and they're really hoping Americans forget that poverty in this country and, and struggling to make ends meet is not about some them on the wrong side of the tracks or broken people, as he would frame it. It's mm -hmm. about a broken economy that 
it's only working for the wealthy few and not for the rest of us. And so two studies, I'm going to get nerdy for just a second, so bear with me. Two studies came out just in the past week that really help us understand how widespread economic hardship is in this moment. One of those studies found that half of households in this country don't have enough in earnings to afford food and housing and health care and other kinds of basics, nearly half of households. Mm. And then another study found four in 10 Americans don't even have $400 in the bank. They would literally have to sell something or borrow money to meet an unexpected expense. That is the reality of the economy that we are currently living in. And what's Paul Ryan's answer to that? To refuse for a decade to raise the poverty level minimum wage and try and take away food and housing and health care from people who are already struggling to make ends meet. You know, we're almost at the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. Um, not many people talk about poverty anymore the way Bobby Kennedy did, Mm-mm. but it's just gotten worse. And I mean, the only one who has used the word is Paul Ryan, who's a total phony on the issue, right? Um, because every program, every budget that he puts forth just creates more poor people and hurts the people who are now living in poverty. Um, but why, why, why did that disappear from the American? You know, conscience? and we've talked, and I think that Rebecca's point is a good one. I mean, you know, when you look at something like the minimum wage, people have a sense that this is going to college students who are working yeah, fast yeah, food. And you look yeah. at the average person on minimum wage; it's a thirty-year-old single mother. You know, right now, if you work minimum wage in this country at right. seven twenty-five, and you're raising a family, that puts you below the poverty, poverty. line in this country. And yeah. as Rebecca said, we have not raised the minimum wage in this country since. July of 2009 and while the cost of everything else is going up but you're right it's not just it's not just wages it's health care it's food assistance it's housing assistance the fact that they're that their HUD triple the rent on low-income people in HUD housing uh, as if they had a lot of extra money sitting around these people um, yeah it's I mean I, I think that it is a broader message and that, that I think you know we as progressives need to focus on more and back to the comparison to the tax plan, right? I'm, I'm about to blow your minds. The cost of the tax cuts that Republicans just gave to the richest 1% in this country, it costs more than the entire supplemental nutrition assistance program or food stamps. Hmm. Just think about that and how misplaced those priorities are. So now they're turning around and saying, eh, you know what, I think a $1.40 per person per meal, that's what SNAP provides on average, right? Imagine that is your food budget. They're turning around and saying, we can't really afford that anymore. We're gonna have to take food out of the mouths of struggling families and kids and people with disabilities and veterans, and that is what we're gonna do to pay for these tax cuts. All right, here's, here's we need some more, we need some money to so that the deficit is not so big. How about if we don't, here's the answer, how about if we, part of the answer, if we don't give so much money away in subsidies uh, to dairy farmers or to, I don't know, tobacco farmers, whoever is getting these subsidies, in the, are they, they're still in there, right? And that's, and that's a big part. So we're talking about one part of the farm bill, which is the part that authorizes the food stamp program, yeah, which is right. a, a huge, important part of it. There's a lot else in that farm bill, which is in this particular version of the farm bill drafted by House Republicans, is a huge, massive set of giveaways to big ag. That's the real winners from this sure. bill. So you're exactly right, Bill. Always have been. No, no, no. I didn't mean it that way. What I meant was those those subsidies have always been part of the farm bill. You know, they they they, 
I keep thinking of the dairy farmers and whatever. I don't know who else gets these subsidies, but it's just outrageous. Well, We're paying people not to grow certain crops, right? But but that's what makes this defeat of the farm bill even more remarkable because there are so many subsidies in the bill. That's one of the reasons why the bill always goes through because everyone yes. gets yes. A, everyone gets a slice of the pie. And the fact that when you gave all this money out, you still couldn't get it passed uh, is a remarkable absence of leadership. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, and it was... Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy. I, I love what you said about they didn't realize they didn't have the votes. It looked like they did. I mean, first well, of all, talk about they, they wouldn't have even brought the bill up for the vote, right, if they if they That's had right. Known, right. Their so style that's, is, the, under the Hastert rule, they unless all the Repo- they have enough Republican votes, they wouldn't have brought it up. That's exactly right. So they wouldn't have brought yeah. the bill up. But it was literally as it was on the floor being voted on that they started to see the numbers. And you could literally see it in their faces. They didn't know that they hadn't had the votes. So they're going to try again. Uh, the, the Senate is working on its own bipartisan process right now. We'll see what that looks like. We're expecting to see a draft of that um, sometime in, in June. And then we're expecting Paul Ryan and his colleagues in Congress to madly and feverishly whip to try to put the pieces back together of this cruel bill so that they can pass something. Um, mm-hmm. And frankly, I'm I'm not so sure they're going to be able to do that. I think that they're counting their chickens when they say they think they have the votes right now. I think that they are going to have a much harder time trying to do this because as they, I mean, they really learned the hard way last year when they were trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act. They learned how popular Medicaid was when it was yeah. Medicaid that really saved the ACA. I think they're now learning something similar with food stamps, which is that two-thirds of Americans oppose cuts to this program, people are rising up and saying, this isn't the kind of country I want to live in. And I'm going to remember in November if you vote to cut this program. Chris, what is the uh, last, have we, has there been enough shakedown yet that we know what the real impact of the tax cut bill is? I mean, Republicans, when they passed it, right, they did it because they needed something to run on in 2018. And everybody's going to be so grateful that they have this big tax cut in 2018. This was going to carry the Republicans to victory. No, and and look, obviously, the way that the bill was structured was heavily weighted towards corporations and the super wealthy. But when you look at, you know, the percentage not only that went to uh, middle income, low income taxpayers, it was relatively modest. The over the, the theory that, you know, companies would start raising wages on their own hasn't been proven out. I mean, every analysis that's looked at this um, has found that to the extent that there have been any wage increases, it's because of these one-time bonuses, which are not impactful in a long-term way, Mm -hmm. uh, or it's been because the wages would have gone up anyway because we are at 3.9% unemployment in a tightening labor market should raise wages. And so, uh, you know, it's it's the classic trickle-down idea. And yet we've had record numbers of stock buybacks uh, every single quarter. And uh, that has just, I mean, not only has it not led to higher wages, it's not even led to more investments back into those companies themselves. And the tax, the average tax, I mean, the tax cut that the middle, some, a middle class family might be getting is, what is, what, what did Paul Ryan, enough to... to well, it was one, it, uh, the, yeah, the, the famous secretary that he tweeted out got an, an extra dollar fifty a week. Yeah. Every, every two weeks. Or every two weeks, which was, was supposed bi-weekly. to, which was supposed to pay for that person's Costco yes, uh, membership. Right. And I, I suspect that secretary he touted, uh, her gas prices have far exceeded that dollar fifty uh, every two weeks. And yet he told her to be grateful for the crumbs, right? That was the other tweet right. he deleted was, we're giving people crumbs, they should be grateful. <laughs> Paul Ryan. Yep. Um, what happened this week with the Dodd Frank legislation? I, I haven't had, again. I was traveling to catch up with that, but 
I mean, I thought Dodd-Frank was a pretty weak bill to begin with, and now we're even taking away, chipping away at some of the protections in the Dodd-Frank bill, Rebecca? It is amazing how short memories appear to be in the Republican Party, because it's it's been just a decade since the start of the financial crisis, right? That's, that's the yeah, point right. in time that we're at. And so the way that they're celebrating that 10-year anniversary is by rolling back the protections that Congress put in place to make sure that we don't do that again. And so what they've effectively done, the House now has has, uh, passed the Senate bill that would effectively roll back Dodd-Frank, rolling back those protections, making us vulnerable again to another massive economic recession um, by effectively uh, uh, deregulating Wall Street. That's what this bill does. And so the largest banks in this country are now being deregulated. That's what the bill would do. Um, And it it yet again exposes us to exactly the kinds of risks we uh, saw drive us into the the Great Recession. Here we go again. Yeah, you know, memories are so short, and I think Rebecca's point's a good one. I mean, this fall is the 10-year anniversary, and, and I remember when I was in the White House for the first term, the very first jobs numbers that we got in February of 2008, uh, this economy lost 800,000 jobs yeah, right. in one month, and that is more than the number of people in Charlotte, North Carolina. And so we've gotten sort of used to in this country now that we're picking up jobs Every month, and that certainly wasn't the case in 2000, uh, 2009, I should say, February 2009. Yeah. Uh, and we were facing uh, an abyss, uh, and we took sensible steps like Dodd Frank uh, post recession uh, to bring the country back. And it's remarkable that how short those memories are, and we're going right back to the same place again. Right. Um, and this it, it was the chip program part of the farm bill. I know that. No, so the CHIP program, the Children's Health Insurance Program, which provides health insurance to about 9 million American kids, not part of the Farm Bill, but definitely in the news this week. Right. Um, and, and that's because, now let's roll the clock back a little bit and, and, and remind ourselves of what's been going on for the past several months. Your listeners will remember that back last year, Republicans held the CHIP program hostage to uh, uh, some politics around the, sh- the government shutdown. They effectively shut the government down because of their unwillingness, in part, it had had to do with DACA as well, um, but it, it also had to do with their unwillingness to fund health insurance for 9 million kids. Traditionally, another bipartisan program, right? We were talking about the bipartisan tradition of the Farm Bill. There's been nothing more bipartisan than CHIP over the years, and yet they held that program hostage, said, eh, 9 million kids, we'll let them you know, hang in the balance while we play some politics here. Eventually, they ended up striking a bipartisan deal with Democrats earlier this year. It was a budget deal that did fully fund the CHIP program, and now they've quite quietly turned right around and said, eh, we kind of want a mulligan on that. We want that money back. And so what they're trying to do is to claw $7 billion out of the Children's Health Insurance Program. Um, and and again, you know, just it seemingly because they're not prioritizing kids' health insurance, they're prioritizing uh, uh, the, the wealthy corporations and the rich in this country in every single way that they can and trying to figure out how they can scrounge up money to close that hole in the deficit that we just talked about. And it is remarkable that you just said that $7 billion compared to a $1.5 trillion tax cut. And that's the way that they're going to hang, uh, that they're going to hold themselves out as as deficit hawks, that they clawed $7 billion back from children. Uh, I mean, hearing you talk about this, you just think about the priorities, right? I mean, what kind of a, a set of priorities is it when your targets for cutting, right, are children's just... <laughs> Children's health, 
or food stamps for people, uh, you know, who who are really in need and living below the poverty line. It says And everything. those are the ones who would do. Didn't George W. Bush, when he was first running for president, say something about you shouldn't balance the budget on the backs of the poor? I mean, as a criticism of the leaders of his own party. Well, and that's exactly right. And the, frankly, in terms of the programs that Rebecca's talking about, there's not even that much money that goes to those programs. No, you couldn't no. even balance it, even if you, even if that was your goal. Yeah. Plus, the, 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 I still call it food stamps because I think people haven't quite. Right. If you say SNAP, they're not exactly right. sure not, what you're talking about. But as others have pointed out, this is one government program that really works in the sense that it goes up when there are a lot of people who really need help. And then it goes down when more people get jobs and more people get their life together and, and they don't depend on that. Well, right? and, and so a, it's, it's not a constant, constant absolutely. cost. Well, but a, a big part which, of— Which is the way things ought to work. But well, go and, ahead. And sorry to cut you off, Bill. A, no. big part, a big part of the conversation that's been missing, I feel, when we talk about um, food stamps is it's not just a question of helping people when they're out of work. Republicans make it sound like it's you've got this group of people in the country who just don't want to work, right? That's what they make their proposals all about is, mm-hmm. is painting that picture of poverty in this country. But the reality is a big part of the food stamp program is helping low-wage workers put food on the table because they aren't earning enough to feed their families. So we, we actually point. did some Good analysis sure. at the Center for American Progress. My colleague, Rachel West, brilliant economist I work with, um, crunched some numbers and found that if you were to raise the minimum wage just to $12, not even to the $15 that we're seriously talking about now as a country, you would save $53 billion in the food stamp program over a decade. So if Republicans were serious about trying to shrink spending on these kinds of programs that they don't like, the first order of business should be raising that poverty level minimum wage so that people can afford to eat without needing to turn to that kind of program. You're asking too much of these people. <laughs> yeah, right? You're asking too much of Paul Ryan. That's logical, Rebecca. I, I don't know what I was <laughs> it's thinking. It's logical. It's math. It's uh, No, but it is striking because I remember when, you know, when Tom Perez and I were at the Department of Labor, we would obviously make a big pitch not only for uh, the minimum wage but paid leave. But you go to f- food banks, people at food banks are working poor. These are not yes. people sitting around. They're they're earning income, but not enough to feed their families. No, exactly. Excellent conversation, both of you. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll go into the weekend. Uh, Rebecca Vallis from the Center for American Progress, AmericanProgress.org. Uh, and Chris Liu, people can follow you on Twitter at Chris Liu, L-U, at Chris Liu 44. That's it for, for, for us today, folks. Have this a great weekend. We'll see you on Bill Monday. Press show. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion.